Okay, we're ready. Is everybody ready? We will continue in our uh, study of the book of the Revelation, session 22. And we will complete uh, chapter 19 and hopefully get into chapter 20. 19, looking at the second coming, and chapter 20, the kingdom. And like I said this morning, I'm sick of hearing myself. So I'm going to finish chapter 19, and then Tommy's going to do chapter 20, since he wrote his paper on it. And Lindsay's going to do chapter 21, since she's done her paper on it. And Brad's off the hook, because his is on chapter 5, and we're already done with that. So. No, we're just kidding. <clears throat> All right. Second coming. This morning we uh, looked at uh, the first part of chapter 19. We looked at verses 1 through 10. And it's primarily focused around worship. There is uh, an interesting little passage in there, if you remember, that deals with the church. That's, And I mentioned this morning that's the only passage in all of this portion of the book that deals with the church. And it doesn't use the word ecclesia, but it does refer to an event that the church still has in the future. That's the church eschatology. Everything else is Jewish eschatology. So we will continue. The second part of uh, chapter 19 is verses 11 through 16. And this is a description of the return itself. This is Israel's Messiah coming in the way that the first century Jewish people anticipated, hoped for, expected, emphasized, and because he didn't come in this way, many of them uh, turned away from him. Uh, it wasn't the image that they had of Messiah. So this is what they were looking for. They were looking for this coming. Because the majority of the passages obviously describe the second coming in light of what we will see in chapter 19. Walbridge says about the second coming, the second coming is the theme of the whole book. Everything before is just introduction. So we've been just introducing the main topic of the book, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a way, I would agree with that because everything is kind of moving in that direction Ultimately anticipating the saints are praying that evil will be um, dealt with, that the, their, their, their deaths will be avenged. And that's not going to happen ultimately until Jesus Christ returns. So everything is kind of building and building and building and moving to uh, this main area of the book, the second coming. But everything before is also necessary to kind of lay the groundwork and also hopefully to help us appreciate uh, the Lord's return. We can break down his return into smaller chunks here. Verse 11, you can add this to your exegetical outline. Uh, I see verse 11 kind of focused on his purpose. But before we, uh, before we get into the verse, let me just uh, give some background and some uh, Old Testament allusions or that uh, we have alluded here. Passages that John possibly has in mind as he is describing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, obviously, in verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open. We have that same characteristic opening. Kai Adon. We've seen that over and over. So this is another vision. But behind this, uh, John is thinking and probably being reminded as he's seeing the second coming of passages like Psalm 2.9. A psalm that deals with uh, the nations predominantly. And it says that thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. And when the Lord comes, He's going to deal with the nations. He's probably also thinking of passages like Isaiah 11.4. With righteousness, He will judge the poor. So when He comes, they expected Him to judge. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And He will strike the earth with a rod of His mouth. This is part of the imagery there. And with the breath of His lips, He will slay the wicked. He may be thinking or being reminded of Joel 3.19. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. In fact, we've seen that same imagery even before this in the book of Revelation. Uh, the verse continues, The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Referring to the peoples of the tribulation and their deserving of... Uh, God's judgment. We also have allusions of this warrior. The picture that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think there's two um, uh, uh, images that are mixed together. Uh, One image of a judge that is coming to judge. A second image, and some of these other passages that we looked at, uh, conveys that imagery. He also is coming as a king that is conquering, a conquering king, a warrior king, one that is coming and will subdue peoples. For example, Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, 5 and 6, the Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings, a conquering king, shattering other kings. In the day of his wrath, and he will judge among the nations, he will fill them with corpses. And we're going to see that image brought out in chapter 19. The rest of the verse, he will shatter the chief men over a broad country. So he's going to deal with nations and leaders of nations. Isaiah 35, 4, say to those with anxious heart, take courage Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. That's primarily to Israel. Even Haggai 2.7 anticipates this coming. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So, many of these passages are in the uh, Old Testament that deal with the coming of the Lord. And there's several prophecies. We won't go into them for the sake of time, but you can jot down all the way back to Genesis 3.15 anticipates ultimately the the one that will come and deal with sin. Genesis 49.10 referring to uh, a ruler that will... Have a scepter out of uh, Judah. You're familiar with that passage. Uh, Passages like Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, speaking of the reign of 
the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah 9, also speaking of his government and a reign. All the way back to Deuteronomy 7 as well uh, anticipates the second coming. And we could list a myriad of other uh, passages as well. But let's look at uh, this description beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. So we have a heavenly scene again. And behold, a white horse. This is different from the one that we saw in chapter 6. Although commentators uh, oftentimes mix the two up. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. We are continually reminded of his faithfulness and his truth. These are titles that are associated with, with Messiah in the Old Testament. And this is what he sees. And the essence of what he will do, in other words, his purpose is in righteousness he judges. One thing. Secondly, and wages war. This is the purpose of coming. The purpose is predominantly to judge and deal with sin in a final way. And that's what he will do. And we'll see at the end of the chapter, uh, the beginning stages of him finishing this judgment that he will come. So he comes as a judge, and then the next little phrase, and wages war. That's the warrior king that will wage war, subdue enemies. And then once he subdues enemies, he will reign as king. So those are the two major Im- images that I see conveyed by the rest of the, uh, the verses that we'll look at. So that's his purpose. Next, verses 12 and 13, we have a portrait of him. In other words, a picture or a visual description of him. And if you look at the details, you'll be reminded of chapter 1. In fact, uh, all of these come out of chapter 1. Notice as we read, one, one little difference from this description that kind of stands out from the description that we have in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the description was framed primarily in similes. I I think there were 11 similes that were used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. To clearly indicate that Christ, or this vision that John saw of Christ, reminded John of other things. The difference between this description... Uh, I conclude that instead of using similes, John describes essentially the same person, but now it's framed with metaphors because the images are basically the same. And he's assuming that you're just seeing the correspondence between the first vision and the second vision. So we're not departing from a literal interpretation. We're looking at the same vision, except now John frames it as metaphors rather than similes. Where clearly he is, he is saying this is like this, but instead in this case he will make a direct correspondence. So let's begin by looking at verse 12. Notice right off the bat, his eyes are a flame of fire. Now, we're not going to depart from the literal and say, well, his eyes are a frame of fire. But in the vision in chapter 1, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Here, the difference between a metaphor and a simile 
Is this simply that a simile has the as to make it clear that it's a simile? In this context, together with the uh, vision in chapter 1, we probably can understand the same imagery. In other words, it's the same description, except now they're framed as metaphors. Make sense? So that's a difference, uh, a difference that we'll observe. So again, what we have here is a description of one that has eyes that are penetrating. Probably the, uh, the illustration we can use in our culture. Uh, if you've been around construction, you know that there's a lot of arc welding and the use of uh, uh, blow torches. And there are blow torches that will blast right through, a blast the flame right through three, three inches of steel if you hold it there long enough. Those are the kind of eyes that the Lord Jesus Christ, they can just penetrate. Uh, nothing can get in the way to obstruct the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the vision in uh, chapter 1, we viewed that. Well, there's one image there. Notice the eyes. <laughs> Uh, the artist there attempting to convey what we have in uh, verse 13. Well, the first thing, what we well, I should have mentioned, what we have here is God judging, separating evil from good. In order to do that, he has to see clearly. He has to discern. In fact, he has to be omniscient. And that's the image that the eyes convey. And that's what we have in the earlier verses that we looked at. But that process is not completed. It will be completed with the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to bring an end to history. Now, it won't be completed at the second coming, because there's another stage that will be introduced, and then we'll have another judgment at the end of a thousand years. So that's the essence of what he is coming for. That's the Messiah that the Jewish people look for. So this portrait... Verse 12, the eyes, you could even, in your mind, think of them like a flame of fire, the metaphor conveying that kind of an image. What we have in view is omniscience. And since we've gone through this already, let me go through the rest of them a little bit more quickly. Penetrating eyes, and upon his head are many diadems. In this case, we have uh, rulership in view, so this is the image of a king. He has a kingly crown. And crowns and uh, rulership speaks of a sovereign control. So we have a sovereign God who is coming, and in that sovereignty, he's going to rule all of the nations. He's going to have complete authority and control. That's the image that we have with the diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Now, that probably implies incomprehensibility, as we said, as we've said before in other contexts. There are some aspects of God himself that we will never know. And there is a doctrine of Scripture that uh, teaches this concept of the incomprehensibility of God. We've talked about this as well, <clears throat> so I'm not going to belabor it so that we can move on and get through the material. The next little phrase there in verse 13, uh, after the name which no one knows, verse 13, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. 
Now, there's a, there's a couple of views that are probably uh, likely here. Some uh, believe that the blood is a reference to the judgment in the, the killing of people as a result of them being judged. Uh, we're going to see more of that. That's a possibility. Other scholars inclined to believe that what we have here is a reminder of what he accomplished on the cross. So it would be a reference to his own blood that was shed. Uh, scholars are pretty much divided on that. It may also include the idea of uh, his holy, righteous character that requires a sacrifice for, for, for the redemption of mankind, looking at his holiness. Verse 13, And his name is called the Word of God. That's an allusion to John's common phrase in the Gospels may allude to his truthfulness, his inerrant understanding of truth. Verse 13. And then verse 14. Uh, that's kind of a quick look at the portrait, but I think we've looked at all of these things before, so I'm going to move a little more rapidly. We saw his purpose in 11. We see a portrait of him in 12 and 13. Verse 14, we have his personnel. Now, it may stretch the... Uh, description there, but I'm using P's as my alliterative tool here, alliteration. Verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were clothed with him on white horses. Now, who are the armies? Uh, the passage is not clear. In this context, so you have to kind of go to other passages to uh, get a little help. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, angels are referenced. Uh, there's some other passages that indicate that uh, the, the believers will return with Christ to the earth. So I would take it that uh, the armies of heaven probably include both angelic beings and and uh, and saints uh, saints of the church age and probably saints of uh, the Old Testament and tribulation saints as well so I would take it that uh, all of the saints will return with the Lord Jesus Christ so the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen that's usually a image of uh, those that have been declared righteous and therefore cleansed so it's an image of re, uh, regenerated people. Uh, we saw angels wearing the same garments as well. So those that didn't need redemption, but those that uh, maintained their, uh, their purity. Uh, white and clean were following him on horses. So those are the personnel. Uh, next, in verses 15 and 16, we have his performance. In other words, what's he going to do when he arrives? We saw his purpose in 11 is to judge and wage war. In 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. There's judgment. Uh, there's the executing of judgment. In other words, he is going to deal with sin in a final way. So, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations. In other words, he's going to deal with nations. That's part of the purpose of the tribulation is to bring judgment. He's going to bring it to an end. Uh, 
So the smiting of the nations, there's that allusion to some of those other passages that I read at the very beginning there. So not only is he going to do that, but what else do we have in the verse? So that with it he may smite the nations. And then following that, this anticipates the millennial rule. This is the king. This is the warrior that conquers and then begins to rule. Uh, there's some sheets up here, Amy, if you uh, want to get some copies. The last part, he will rule them with a rod of iron. That comes right out of Psalm 2 and some of the other passages. And he treads back to the theme of judgment and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. You see the two elements that are weaved throughout these? Judgment and rulership. That of a judge, that of a king. And I think that's the image that kind of permeates uh, this descriptive passage. Uh, verse 16 adds to that, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Here's another title. Not only is he faithful and true as titles, not only is he called the Word of God, but in verse 16, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Back to the theme of Royalty, back to the theme of sovereignty and rulership. So that's the description. It, it's pretty simple. We've gone over it before when we were in chapter 1. So I uh, hope that is adequate treatment of that passage. That's the return. Now, part of the executing of justice, he's going to tie some loose ends. We said most of the judgments were done in chapter 18, but we're going to revisit some of those beginning in uh, verse 17. So let's continue reading there. The justice of God is now going to work itself out. He's going to complete the judgment. He comes as judge and he's going to use that sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. And notice it's in, in, in metaphor form. Verse 17, and I saw. So we have another little vision, a little visual that John sees. And another angel. This one's standing in the sun. Uh, in other words, probably obscuring, almost eclipsing the sun, perhaps. At least that's the image that we have here. And he cried out with a loud voice. Again, we have loud voices saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come and assemble for the great supper of God. Now, we have another supper. We uh, looked at one supper or meal in uh, the first part of chapter 11. Uh, I think these are put together in contrast. On one hand, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and in great contrast, we have another supper introduced to us in verse 17. This is a different supper. The first one is glorious. The first one is joyous. The first one is a celebration. In fact, in Jewish culture, I didn't mention this morning, but probably the greatest time of celebration amongst Jewish people was at a wedding feast. Uh, the most joy, the most uh, partying, basically, were at a wedding feast. Here we have the very opposite. 
This is a dreadful picture. In fact, you tie this together with the passage that spoke of the blood of those that were slain after Armageddon. The blood reached the bridles, the, the level of the bridles of the horses for 200 miles. This picks up in that image and now you just see corpses on the ground. And who's called to eat this dinner or this supper? The birds. And I've already mentioned that the greatest indignity that you can uh, do to someone is to let their dead bodies not be buried and leave them there for the birds to eat. Uh, we saw that image all the way back in the time of Ahab, uh, Jezebel. In fact, it was predicted that she would be eaten by birds. Great indignity as judgment for her character and the sins that she performed in the days of Ahab. We have something like that here where we have all these corpses laying out in this great expanse uh, encompassing most of the land of Palestine, if we take it literally. And the birds are called now to partake. This is what they do. These are vultures. These are eagles. These are animals that eat this kind of food. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks of the same thing. Do you remember the passage? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24 to see this parallel. In conjunction with the second coming. After we have. Let's see, where is the passage? I forget where that passage is. I thought it was right after the second coming. I should have looked it up. Ahead. Oh, here it is. Uh, look at verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 28. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, in Matthew, it's not real clear and it's almost cryptic. Crypt, uh, what's the word? Cryptic, cryptic, is that the right word? Uh, I think uh, the book of Revelation kind of makes clear what's going on here in conjunction with the description that we had of the end of the battle of Armageddon. Uh, you have a, a picture of vultures eating corpses, and that's what we have here. So this angel calls for the birds to gather. And uh, there's this great supper of God. And then verse 18 amplifies this. In order that they may eat the flesh, and more specifically, of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses. Uh, this is war. This is a battle scene. Uh, these are those that are slain by the sword that comes out of the mouth of, of Messiah. Uh, goes on, of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free, free men and slaves, small and great. So it's all encompassing. This is, this is the final war, the final battle that is uh, completed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it follows right after the description there. So we have this interesting supper that is described there. Now, in terms of God's justice, there are several judgments that are associated with the second coming. We've 
spoken, uh, not in the book of Revelation, but in other passages in the New Testament, that speaks of a judgment of uh, saints. We call that uh, what judgment? What's the judgment that is associated with believers or the body of Christ, the church? There's the Bema, yeah. It's, it's not judgment for sin, because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, a, it's an evaluation or it's a judgment of, of the sort to distribute rewards. Or uh, if there's unfaithfulness, no faithfulness, then there's a suffering of loss. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, there's a few passages that speak of the Bema. So... This is associated with the second coming, probably more closely with the rapture than the second coming. There are also predictions of judgment upon the nation of Israel. Part of the tribulation judgment is upon the nation of Israel. In order to judge those that don't respond and also to awaken the consciences of those that uh, will, in fact, respond. Uh, there's also a judgment of the nations, and that is referenced here. This is at the second coming. And it speaks of kings, a king and free and slaves. That's what we have at the second coming, the judgment of the nations. There's going to be a, a judgment of Antichrist. Let's read on. So... In our broader outline, you have this on your outline sheet, uh, we have the second coming, chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, using S as my uh, alliterative device. I've called this next section the squelching of enemies, just to use the S. 17 through 21. You don't like that one, huh? (laughs) Uh, 17 through 21. The first enemies are the unbelievers. So these unbelievers, all unbelievers in this period of time are now dead and their corpses are left as food for vultures. All right. Now, in verse 19, he sees another vision. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth. And their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Uh, This is reminiscent of passages that we've already looked at, so we don't have to explain them further. Those who worship his image, just reminders uh, these were these two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. There's the final confining of evil for eternity. All of evil will be confined to the lake of fire. So evil is bounded. It's not an ongoing thing in terms of God's plan. And here is the final destination of those that spend eternity apart from him. So it begins with uh, two members of the uh, unholy trinity. And they're called attention to. So we have enemies overall that are squelched or judged or dealt with, at least killed. Now those dead, 
They're going to come back to life. There's a resurrection that we'll see at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. Uh, but these enemies are done and finished and dealt with. They will end in the lake of fire. This is the passage that speaks of him going to the lake of fire. This is the Antichrist, the first beast. The first beast is the Antichrist. Hmm? No, this is it. You're thinking of Satan. Satan is the only one that's released. These guys are done. They're dealt with. Not only are they condemned, but now they are sentenced to the lake of fire. This is the end of it. That's why I said this is a process that kind of works itself out. Satan will be released and then he will end up in the same place. When we get to the end of the millennial kingdom, we'll see the dead are raised again. These are unbelievers. They will end up in the same place. That's the second death. All right. Could be, yeah. Yeah, using those passages in Daniel that go beyond uh, a thousand years, yeah, or seven years, yeah, those 75 extra days or something. It's possible. We don't have a time frame here, and the Daniel passages would be the only ones that would give support to that idea. Is this stated? In other words, it's done here. The only thing that we have in this context is this thousand year period of time. So we have the supper in verses 17 through 19. We have the staging of this dealing with enemies in verse 19. And verse 20 is the seizure of the two uh, beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And verse 21, we have the slaying. Uh, the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. See how it kind of ties together there. So it's talking about the same event here. It just calls attention to the Antichrist and false prophet. So it ties back to verse 17. These are all the unbelievers. No, no unbelievers are left on the face of the earth. They're all killed. Two of them are in their final destination. The dead will still be dealt with later at the great white throne. That's a future judgment. So in our timeline, uh, well, that's it. Let's see. I, I thought I had some more graphics on here. All this takes place in conjunction with the second coming. So the next thing, obviously, is after the coming, the establishment of the kingdom. Part of the establishment of the kingdom, Christ is dealing with these enemies. So that concludes chapter 19 and moves us into the uh, next chapter, chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss. Another angel, another vision. Same reference. We saw the abyss in uh, what, was, what was the chapter? Chapter 9, I believe. Uh, and a great chain in his hand. Now, it has to be a chain that can confine a spiritual being. 
Uh, so it's probably not a physical chain. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So it's no question as to who's involved here. And bound him for a thousand years. Here's the first mention of a thousand year period. Revelation chapter 20 is the only place in all of Scripture that uh, tells us that the kingdom that is very common in the Old Testament, the kingdom that Jesus offered, the kingdom that the disciples anticipate being established, the kingdom that uh, some of the uh, letters of Paul and other letters anticipate, this is the first place in all of Scripture that we know that the kingdom is millennial. There's a thousand years. The kingdom is a common concept throughout all of the Bible. This is the only place that we have a thousand, thousand years. And it occurs six times so that you don't mistake it, mistaken it, so that you don't think that it's non-literal. It's reiterated six times. And still, the amillennialist uh, spiritualizes the thousand years. Well, what is this kingdom? Well, let me introduce it a little bit. Uh, the importance of it. It's a major teaching. It's a concept that begins all the way back in the book of Genesis even. There's allusions to the kingdom all the way back there. Certainly, it becomes more clearly defined with the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7. And we see an illustration on a human, on a sinful level of what a kingdom can be like. In fact, uh, I, I won't do it here, but uh, uh, I did a study, we did a study with a group that I'm involved in where we looked at the kingdom in the Old Testament and I drew out from that study, uh, I think six or seven, I think seven, I usually try to figure out seven of them because it's kind of a good pattern. Seven characteristics of the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament that were also kind of the forerunners or the foundation for the millennial kingdom. Because we believe that what we have in the millennial kingdom is not only prophesied, but it's just as literal as the kingdom of Israel. And there are, there are at least seven elements that I was able to draw out uh, that are also characteristics of the millennial kingdom. Except that kingdom will not have a sinful king, for one. It will have a sinless king. It uh, also... Uh, has uh, physical conditions that were different than they were in the Old Testament. The environment is going to be different. And righteousness is going to be there. And you're not going to have unrighteous king and unrighteous people. So there's several of these elements, but they're all there in the Old Testament. So it's a major teaching is the point I'm making. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus Christ, when he offers the kingdom, he's offering the kingdom that the Jews conceived of in their minds and that they knew about in terms of what their kingdom was like. And they had a vision of this kingdom in terms of what it was supposed to be like. And I think they had an idea of these seven, at least these seven and maybe more than that. Uh, and then they had the Davidic covenant that kind of promised this future kingdom. 
Then Daniel comes along and he speaks of the kingdoms of the nations that ultimately will be uh, replaced by the ultimate kingdom of, uh, of the Messiah. So this is the major teaching of the Old Testament. And then when Jesus comes, this is the kingdom that he offers. And this is the kingdom the disciples anticipated. So what we're going to talk about here has all kinds of passages. We won't be able to look at all of them. Walvred says the doctrine of the millennial kingdom of God is one of the, the major revelations of Scripture pertaining to God's program. And I think that's a good statement. Uh, huge, uh, huge uh, theme throughout Scripture. So it's an important teaching. Secondly, we could say it's important because there's a biblical necessity that God establish his kingdom. Uh, he's entered into covenant promising that he will. In other words, this is a legal issue. Uh, the truthfulness of God, the reliability of God is at stake if there's no kingdom. So it's a necessity, a biblical necessity. Uh, God would be a liar if, in fact, there's no kingdom. In fact, I think all millennialists, you could almost accuse them of that because they've done away with the kingdom. There is no kingdom. Well, they say there is, but it's a different form. It's a non-literal kingdom. So there's a biblical necessity. We could add a lot to that, but uh, let's move on. Oops. Uh, part of uh, being a biblical necessity, it uh, fulfills the biblical covenants of the Old Testament. None of the covenants, the Abrahamic, nor the Palestinian, nor the Davidic, nor even the New Covenants have been ultimately and completely fulfilled. They don't find their ultimate and complete fulfillment. You might even include the Noahic covenant is not even completely fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. So the covenants anticipate and expect the fulfillment of a millennial kingdom. Uh, in Galatians 3, Jesus Christ, to some extent, fulfilled the blessing aspect of the millennial kingdom, or, or of the uh, Abrahamic covenant, rather. But even that is not a complete fulfillment because it includes the nations and the blessing of the nations is not totally fulfilled till the millennial kingdom. We'll see that as we look at details concerning the kingdom. So, the Abrahamic covenant the blessing aspect is still yet to be fulfilled. The Palestinian covenant, which centers on the land, Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land. God promised all the way to the Euphrates. They've never even been close to the Euphrates, even in the time of Solomon. So that has never been fulfilled. And during the millennial kingdom, that aspect will be fulfilled. Uh, the Davidic covenant, Israel ruling over the nations. That has never been fulfilled. Wasn't fulfilled in David's time to some extent, but not completely. Uh, the Davidic covenant still awaits a ruling. And by the way, the, uh, the Messianic king will be the king of kings and lord of lords. That awaits that aspect of it. Uh, the aspects of the new covenant that we enjoy... 
Those aspects were not initially given. Well, the covenant is not with the church. The new covenant is with the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is yet to experience the regeneration that the new covenant anticipates. That will be millennial when they will enjoy that. Well, they will come into the regenerating work, but they will also enjoy some other things related to the new covenant during the millennial kingdom. So the covenants await fulfillment. It also would leave the plan of God incomplete. So it completes, we could say, the importance of the kingdom completes the plan of God. In terms of history, I'm going to go a little bit more rapidly over these views. In fact, this one, uh, there is a concept even in secular thinking Uh, there's a a yearning for, there's a desire for kind of a utopic uh, government or kingdom or uh, ways of people interacting. Uh, The communists, for example, had a vision of a kingdom. Nazism had the Third Reich. This is a kingdom concept. Uh, So peoples and nations have kind of envisioned a period of utopia of man. And obviously man by government is never going to achieve that, but man continually attempts to do that through political systems. So uh, there are some people that uh, have that concept and some people are working in that direction. Uh, Globalism has this idea, a kind of a unified world that can... uh, Uh, introduce peace. Uh, Some people view the kingdom as the same as heaven. Uh, That's a very common view in the church. Uh, The amillennialist, for example, believes that the, the, the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not literal. It's not earthly. It's not visible. There's others that view the kingdom, this is also amillennial, that it's just the church. The kingdom in the Bible is, the, is just the church. The kingdom of the Old Testament was forfeited when Israel rejected the Messiah. Uh, that's replacement theology. We believe that this is a distinct era, a distinct age, uh, with, a, with a definite time frame of a thousand years that is literal in every way that is described in the Old Testament passages that describe the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, We can demonstrate from the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that this was his viewpoint. If we had time. Uh, The biblical word basileia is translated kingdom. has the meaning of rulership. Uh, commonly, we also, because of uh, Revelation 20, we oftentimes call the kingdom, the millennium, and you've seen that word commonly, comes from the uh, putting together of two Latin words, milas, which means thousand, and annus, which means year, thousand year period. Uh, the New Testament word, uh, or New Testament word, kilioi, uh, sometimes it's refer. Our viewpoint is viewed as kiliism. See if I can bring that thing up. Kilioi is the Greek word for thousand. That's the word that we have in Revelation chapter twenty. Uh, let me skip over some of this stuff. Uh, the way the kingdom has manifested itself over time. 
Uh, I don't want to get to that. Lots of issues with the kingdom. The thousand years, are those literal or are they symbolic? Well, we, we take them literally. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the issue of Satan bound. This is a major issue between amillennialism and premillennialism. This is a major weakness of amillennialism. Because they basically say if we're in the kingdom now and it's a spiritual kingdom, then in some way Satan has to be bound. Yeah, he's on a long leash. Yeah. Is it total or is it relative? Well, I think it's a, it's a total binding of Satan where he will not have opportunity to tempt. In fact, the text will indicate that. So you have to spiritualize the text. What about Christ's rule? Is that literal or is that spiritual? Again, the conflict between amillennial and premillennial. These are all issues that uh, I think the text resolves if you take it literally. The whole concept of kingdom, is it an earthly kingdom or is it a heavenly kingdom? Again, same, same conflict. Uh, this I want to go over. I, I don't want to spend too much time on these positions, but just so we are understanding the distinction of premillennialism, let me contrast them. Uh, there's three basic views. The postmillennial view. How do you take the thousand years and where do you put the coming of the Messiah in relationship to that thousand years? Here's a common uh, quote that you will find in amillennial writings. Uh, Kenneth Gentry expects the proclaiming of the spirit-blessed gospel of Jesus Christ to win the vast majority of human beings to salvation. So it has an optimistic view of the church and its mission and its accomplishment. Uh, that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ will win the vast majority of human beings to salvation in the present age. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, prosperity will prevail in the affairs of of people and of nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, in great glory, ending history with the general resurrection and the great judgment of all humankind. That's postmillennialism. The idea is that uh, the church will gradually increase and have greater and greater influence such that it has a great effect upon the culture and that great effect introduces a millennial kingdom and then Christ and they use the reward passages and the passages dealing with crowns and and that sort of thing to uh, tell us that after the millennium then it's at that point that Christ returns to reward the church for a job well done. So it's very optimistic. This view almost died out after World War One and World War Two. There's been a resurgence of it, and the only reason I mention it now, it almost died. There's a resurgence of it today. If you hear Dominion theology, post millennial. That's in charismatic circles. 
in Reformed circles, Reconstructionism, that's postmillennialism. And there are several Reformed theologians that hold the postmillennialism today. So there's a resurgence of it. Uh, there's the return, and then there's a final resurrection and judgment where everything's kind of lumped together in these other viewpoints. These are some of the names of people that hold to this view. Lorraine Bettner, John Murray, uh, obviously he's reformed. R.J. Rushdoony, O.T. Alice. Some of the older theologians were amillennial. Uh, C. Hodge, Charles Hodge, A.H. Hodge. A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield. These are very conservative theologians that uh, we have a high respect for. Their eschatology was amillennial, however. In fact, I use Charles Hodge's theology. Uh, I like the writings of B.B. Warfield. Now, obviously, I disagree with his eschatology. Uh, W.G.T. Shedd, T. Brightman. Amillennialism is more common. In fact, amongst... The overall church, the whole spectrum of the church, predominantly the church is all millennial. The majority viewpoint, and I'm talking not just in terms of the overall, but evangelical Christianity is predominantly all millennial. All Reformed theology, except those that are post-mill, all Roman Catholicism, all the Orthodox churches are all all millennial. And a lot of uh, um, others outside of those groups. Amillennialism, there's no future kingdom. The heaven is, or the uh, heaven now rules over the church. So Christ is ruling. There's actually two forms of this. I won't get into the details. Uh, one is primarily that uh, Christ reigns from heaven over the church. That's the kingdom. Satan is now bound. We mentioned that. Uh, Christ is present in one's hearts and ruling in people's hearts. Christ comes at the end of the age. Not at the end of the millennium because there's no uh, millennium. In fact, in Greek, when you put an, an alpha before a noun, it negates it. So in this case, uh, an alpha before millennium means unmillennium or no millennium. And this is essentially amillennialism. Church age equals the kingdom. And after the church age, then we have Christ's return. And then they lump together all of the other associated things with the second coming, resurrection and judgment. Okay. Those that hold that, E.J. Young, he's a, a very good theologian, by the way. William Hendrickson, also a good theologian. Kuiper. Leon Morris, uh, older theologians, Burkhoff, these are Reformed theologians, Lenski, H.B. Sweet. Uh, I use this commentary, in fact, I use that commentary in the book of Revelation just to see the amillennial position. All of the Reformers remained amillennial. The Roman Catholic Church was amillennial uh, after about Augustine. And it remained amillennial. All of the reformers had their hands full. You need to kind of cut them some slack. Their, their hands were full in just dealing with soteriology. So they didn't deal with uh, eschatology. 
for example, Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except which one would you expect? The book of Revelation. Yeah. So they did not tamper with the uh, eschatology of the Roman Catholic Church. And I can understand. I mean, they had their hands full just dealing with soteriology. So Martin Luther uh, and name all of the reformers, basically. Premillennialism, that's the viewpoint and the approach that we've been taking here. We see that uh, Christ returns before the millennium. That's the key there. And we see a variety of judgments that we've been tracing through. So there's several judgments. There's also several resurrections. We, I gave you a graphic on that. You guys were kidding me being mid, mid-trib, post-trib, post-mill. In Lindsay, with respect to the uh, resurrections. Uh, the essence of premillennialism, Christ comes before the millennium. This is old hat for most of you. Christ establishes the kingdom. In other words, he has to, in his omnipotence, establish the kingdom. This is a totally different environment that can only be done by supernatural means. Uh, the gospel is not going to do it. As powerful as the gospel is. The kingdom is literal and earthly. Now, I'm going to give you some of the characteristics of the kingdom. There are spiritual aspects. Uh, the amillennialist says there's only spiritual aspects. But we believe that, yes, there are spiritual aspects, but there's also literal and earthly aspects. Uh, there's a distinction between a present form of the kingdom, if you hold to the mystery form of Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom. It's just different and distinct from that. And this is what the Jews expect. We expect all that the Jews expected. This is Jewish eschatology. Jews expect fulfillment of the promises, and you can include the covenants. That's the kingdom that we anticipate. We see it in uh, different stages. We see a coming and a resurrection of the believer. We call that the rapture. We see a seven-year tribulation associated with the coming of Messiah. And then we see a return of Christ or a coming of the Messiah. And then we see a thousand-year period. This is basically the chronology of the book of Revelation, the broad chronology. And then we see another resurrection of the unbeliever at the end because that's what uh, chapter 20 tells us. And then there's that final judgment, the great white throne. Uh, you could also superimpose on that the different judgments, the judgments of the tribulation, the judgment at Christ's return, and then the judgment at the end. Proponents, Walvoord, Gleason, Archer, basically all dispensationalists, like Pentecost, like Feinberg, uh, people like us, basically. A.J. McLean, historically, uh, Ladd, Bruce, uh, Lightfoot, oops, went too fast on that one. Lightfoot, R.H. Charles, although he's somewhat liberal. And uh, real quickly, what supports it? If you take a literal approach, this is key, by the way. 
if you take a literal approach to Bible prophecy, uh, there's no other option. I mean, the literal approach just kind of moves you in a premillennial direction. Uh, the only way that you can support amillennialism or postmillennialism, you have to spiritualize the passages. You have to take them in a non-literal way. In fact, this is the major distinction between premillennialism and amillennial and postmillennial is the hermeneutic. You have a different hermeneutic. Uh, we have a literal approach as opposed to a non-literal approach. So if you're consistent in your hermeneutic, then you will be premillennial. If you depart from a literal interpretation, then you could end up with virtually anything, but you'll end up amillennial or postmillennial. Uh, the way prophecy has been fulfilled, there's a pattern. There's a lot of prophecy that's fulfilled in the first century. If you see the same kinds of fulfillment in the coming of Messiah the first time, and you approach this, the passages that deal with the coming of the Lord in the second coming, uh, you use the same hermeneutic, uh, fulfilled prophecy was uh, fulfilled literally. And there's other things. The early church was premillennial all the way up till well, Origen kind of introduced some non-literal interpretation. Augustine, uh, that was kind of the shift where the church became amillennial. But the early church was premillennial. So the early church uh, eventually departed from uh, premillennialism. Uh, this is the expectation of the Old Testament. Chronology of major passages, Revelation 19 and 20, which we're looking at now. Uh, we've looked at this. Overall, the chronology of the book of Revelation, a major problem is the chronology of the tribulation, but very clearly you have a church, chapters 2 and 3, a church age. You have a period of time of tribulation, and then you have a coming of the Lord in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, you have the kingdom. And then 21 and 22, you probably have the eternal state. So the broad strokes of the book of Revelation is premillennial. And you can do the same thing with uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. Same kind of layout. Uh, tribulation, second coming after verse 29. Oops. After verse 29, we have a description of the second coming. And then chapter 25, we have three parables. They're parables of the kingdom, if you look at them. And there's even a statement in verse 46 that alludes to eternity in the Olivet Discourse. Okay. Let me uh, change to the next... PowerPoint presentation. So those are the positions.
I'm going to begin uh, using uh, this timeline. This is kind of an expansion of the thousand years. I've been using a timeline that, expansion, that expanded the seven years. This is kind of what we've been doing through the bulk of the book of Revelation. So in chapter 20, uh, we'll be using this slide because there's certain things that we want to call attention to during that thousand years. This is the outline, my exegetical outline. We've looked at uh, chapter 19, Second Coming, Squelching of Enemies. Uh, I began reading chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, where we have the seizure of Satan. Uh, let's complete that. I stopped at verse 2. Well, let's read it again. And he laid hold of the dragon, verse 2. The serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss. That's not the lake of fire. That's the abyss. We saw that earlier. Referenced two times. It's also in verse 1. And shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed, and after these things, there's the day again, the little Greek word, uh, delta, epsilon, iota, day. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, most people are very confused as to why, why release him. Well, there's a divine necessity. And when we get to that point, I'll give you the rationale. There's no specific verse that says some of the things I'll, I'll mention. So they're theological conclusions. But I think uh, they can be supported from uh, other passages as well. The uh, book of Revelation doesn't tell us. In fact, there's not a verse anywhere that tells us why does God let Satan loose? And what's the purpose of this rebellion at the end? I think there's a, a reason. Uh, and... Uh, why does all of this happen? You know, you have this kingdom, and then at the end, it, it seems like it's disrupted. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, when we get to that passage. Uh, so, verse 3 says that he must be released after a thousand years. He must. It's a divine necessity for a short time. And it doesn't give us a specific time frame. <clears throat> Well, what's the purpose, before we get to verse 4, what's the purpose of the Millennial Kingdom? Uh, there are several that we can come up with. One of them, I think, is to fulfill the purposes of God. There are still things that are not completed in terms of God's plan, God's program, God's purposes. All those prophecies must be fulfilled. They are part of a plan that God has for history. And he's going to fulfill that. In fact, this is part of the reasoning that we will give in terms of why does God let Satan out? It's part of fulfilling part of that plan. So that's what we'll look at. It also manifests the kingdom of God. In other words, what is it like to have Messiah reigning on earth? It's going to give us a great contrast, even with Israel's greatest king. Israel's greatest king was a sinner. 
What's it like to have a sinless king ruling? What's it like to live in an environment where there's no Satan? Where there's no temptation? What's it like when the environment is going to be nearly ideal? What's it like to live in uh, a condition when the curse is lifted to some extent? Not the entire thing. We'll see that in a moment. So it's going to manifest what a kingdom of God looks like and what it's like. We're going to learn some things about God as we are part of that. People that are living in earthly bodies during that time are going to see something about who God is as well. Okay? It also is going to be a, another demonstration. In fact, all of history. Uh, book of Genesis, the main theme of the book of Genesis, the sovereignty of God. Uh, the book of uh, Joshua, main theme, sovereignty of God. In fact, every historical book, a major theme of virtually every historical book, sovereignty of God. So God's not going to interrupt that. He's going to give us a piece of history, a time frame where he's going to rule sovereignly and he's going to rule more overtly. We're going to see a visible expression of the sovereignty of God. We know that God is sovereign and we attribute to him uh, an involvement in our lives and we rest and we trust in that, but we don't see it. We believe it because the Bible says he's sovereign. We're going to see a visible demonstration of the sovereignty of God during the millennial kingdom. Another purpose. It's going to demonstrate, and this is the main purpose of that last incident. It's going to demonstrate once and for all the depravity of man. You can't blame it on your environment for sin and rebellion. You're not going to be able to blame it on Satan because he did not deceive you. The only thing left is the sinful nature of mankind. Well, how does that come, around, uh, come about? We'll talk about that in a moment. But I think in terms of the purpose of it, it's going to demonstrate not only the sovereignty of God, but the depravity of man. And you could include some other attributes as well, but primarily the sovereignty of God. It's going to justify, to some extent, although we've already seen plenty of justification for eternal punishment. Uh, we've had statement after statement of God being righteous and true in terms of judgment. But it's going to kind of put the final uh, piece of evidence before us. Uh, the whole world will see eternal punishment is justified. Because of the depravity of man, because of the depravity of Satan, the punishment is deserved. So these are the major purposes of the Millennial Kingdom. First event that we have is Satan is bound. Uh, the next part of the outline or the consummation, the fourth event here is a brief mention of saints in the millennium. This is chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Uh, let's look at it, introduce it. 
and then we'll take a break. And then what I'd like to do is spend some time looking at the conditions of the kingdom. We have a, one of the, a very brief, almost no description of what the kingdom is like. He doesn't tell us much in, uh, in this passage. The main truth that is taught is that the kingdom is millennial. Uh, what we've been saying about all uh, eschatology is that John assumes that we know the Old Testament. John no- assumes that we know these passages concerning the kingdom. So what I'd like to do is touch on some of those passages, bring them to the forefront, uh, and have us think in terms of these prophecies being fulfilled during this thousand-year period. Because John basically doesn't give us a lot of information here. And I don't want to spend too much time. We'll just see where we are. We're at in time and we'll maybe even cut it short. But I want to give you some aspects of the kingdom. At least I'll give you an overview and we'll look at some passages as well. So verse four. I saw that again, John is seeing another vision. Kai Adon again. And I saw thrones. And, and by the way, uh, Ron kind of reminded me as well. These little phrases are not only introductions to visions, but what we have here is narrative. We have uh, this is real common in telling a story. In other words, these are things that are sequential and e- events. Now, they're at least sequential. I've, I've said that. In fact, I did say this. They're at least sequential in terms of what John is seeing. In other words, I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision, and then I saw this vision. But some of them, and in this case, I think it holds true, not only are they sequential in terms of the visions that he saw, but they are sequential in terms of this event follows this event, in terms of the chronology. Uh, So, what we have here, I think, is a series of sequential events. Second coming, squelching of the enemies at the second coming, seizure of Satan for a thousand years, saints ruling in the millennium for a thousand years, and then we're going to have an event after the thousand years and other events. So both of those are true in this case. Not always true during the the, uh, time that we looked at concerning the tribulation. So, Kai Adon, and I saw thrones... Uh, Now, this is a a, a difficult sentence. It's a long sentence and it's difficult, so let's look at it carefully. I saw thrones. So, John is seeing thrones and they sat upon them. Uh, There's a big debate amongst uh, the commentators as to who the they refers to. Uh, I pulled out a graphic that I was going to go over and give you all these views, but I decided for the sake of time to not to do it. Uh, the bottom line, I think that they includes all of those that are promised a role in the kingdom. Does that make sense? Old Testament saints are promised a role in the kingdom. Uh, Matthew 19.28 promises the twelve disciples. In fact, would somebody look up uh, 19.28? You got it, Lindsay? Yeah, Matthew. 
Old Testament saints are promised places in the kingdom. Matthew 28, or 19 rather, 28, verse 28. You got it? Who's got it? You got it, Brad? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have you who have followed me in the regeneration, and the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Those are the twelve disciples at this point, twelve apostles eventually. They are promised to sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I think that they refers to them. Also, all right. Uh, this also gives us the rationale. Why, why did we have to replace Judas? I think Judas forfeited his rulership. Uh, I think he was an unbeliever. So in Acts chapter one, we have a little incident where Judas is replaced. The replacement of the twelfth is not Paul, as some theologians like to think, but it's uh, Matthias, the one in Acts chapter 1. And the only reason there was a need for it, I think, is because somebody has to occupy that position of authority in the kingdom. Uh, so he will be amongst the other eleven that will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. So believers have a part in that. Are you and I, uh, as members of the body of Christ, promised a role in the kingdom? There's lots of passages that indicate that. Uh, many of them that indicate if we are faithful, we will also rule with him. And I think the whole concept of rewards, part of the reward are uh, positions or uh, uh, places of opportunity for us in the millennial kingdom. So, the they includes you and I. We are part of them. Tribulation saints, I believe. Well, I think they're called attention to if we keep reading here. So everyone that is promised a place in the kingdom are those that are sitting upon them. It doesn't number them, so they're innumerable. And judgment was given to them. I, I, I don't know how that manifests itself, but in some way... Uh, what does 1 Corinthians 6 tell us about the believer? Are you familiar with that passage? That's a, that's a legal passage that uh, I'm sure Brad is familiar with. Remember the Christians at the church at Corinth? They were suing one another. Remember that passage? And Paul is reprimanding them. And he's saying, isn't there anyone in your body that can make these decisions? That you have to go to the Gentiles to let them kind of decide these things? Uh, you should have men that can do this. And what's the rationale behind it? Why should they have men? Because ultimately, we're going to what? We're going we're gonna to judge uh, the nations, right? Does it say that? There's two things that we will judge. One, who's got the little phrase there? We shall judge what? See the passage? Angels, for one, but more than that. How is it phrased there? Uh, there's two things that we judge. Judge the world. We will judge the world. We're going to have a part in judgment. And I think dependent on our faithfulness now, uh, it might be the extent. Uh, and I can't conceive of what that involves, but this is a promise. 
Okay, so this is what it says here. Judgment was given to them. Now, attention is called, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast. Remember, we are reminded of all these things. Or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. They came to life. Here's the... uh, uh, post-millennial resurrection that I told you about. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, specifically, they are promised a reign in the millennial kingdom. See that? Or post-trib, I mean. Post-trib resurrection. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thanks for correcting that. Yeah, they are... Raised after the tribulation, at the beginning of the millennium in this context, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, So, attention is drawn probably as a special recognition because these are martyrs. Martyrs that are raised during the uh, um, coming of the Lord uh, after uh, the period of the tribulation. Now, most conservative uh, theologians also would put uh, a resurrection of Old Testament saints in this place. Uh, Because the church is uniquely raptured and it doesn't include Old Testament saints. So this would be the place where uh, Old Testament saints would be resurrected. Does that make sense? Yeah, we like them. Hmm? Who are the... Yes. 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 So we would put them together. All right. Yeah, we like them. Verse 5. The rest of the dead... Here's everyone else. In other words, everyone that's an unbeliever. The, the only ones that are left are the unbelievers. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And when it says this is the first resurrection, he's not referring to those that are raised after the thousand years. He's referring back to those that are believers that are raised. That's the first resurrection. It has different stages. And if you remember that graphic that I showed you, we have some that are raised. Well, Christ is the first fruits, remember? We have those that are believers that are raised at the rapture. That's the church. We have the two witnesses that were raised in the middle of the tribulation. And then now we have those that are raised at the end, which would be uh, martyrs and Old Testament saints. And then the rest in verse five, the rest of those, they will be raised after the thousand years. And verse six, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death, he introduces that. We're going to talk more about that. The second death has no power. They will be priests. Now, we are already priests in the body of Christ. There's the priesthood of the brethren. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, all of those that are a part of the first resurrection will reign with Christ for a thousand years. That includes you and I. That includes Old Testament saints. Uh, special attention given to the tribulation saints. We will reign with him. And I think the extent and uh, 
perhaps uh, specific aspects of that reign will be dependent on how we live today. Faithfulness today. And also preparation. I made that point uh, this morning in terms of being is preparing ourselves to reign with Christ. And the way that we prepare ourselves is to take advantage of opportunities Christ gives us now, exercising and developing our spiritual gifts, and just simply being obedient to Him as He calls us to obedience. That faithfulness uh, will, in fact, prepare us to reign and serve with Him. This is a concept I think that should be taught more often in the church because most Christians just think, well, it doesn't matter. You know, I've got heaven in the bag, so you know, it doesn't matter that much. Uh, a lot depends on our faithfulness here and now. Uh, let's take a break, and uh, when we come back, uh, I'd like to take a brief look at what the millennium will look like, primarily from the Old Testament, because this is it. This is all he tells us about reigning, all he says is we're going to reign. And then beginning in uh, verse 7, he's going to talk about when the thousand years are completed, Satan's released, and then something's going to happen at the end. So let's take 15 minutes and we'll come back. <laughs> 